0: You're listening to The Dry by Jane Harper. Read for you by Stephen Shanahan. Chapter 24. You're lucky we still have the footage. It usually gets deleted after a month. Scott Whitlam scrolled through the files on his computer until he found what he was looking for. The principal leaned back so Fork and Rako could see the screen. They were in his office, the sounds of the Monday afternoon school bustle drifting through the door. Okay, here we are. This is the view from the camera at the main entrance, Whitlam said. He clicked the mouse and CCTV footage started to play on screen. The camera appeared to be mounted above the large school doors trained down on the steps to capture any approaching visitor. Sorry, it's not great quality. No worries, it's better than what we got from the Hadler's place, Rako said. Cameras are only as much use as what they capture anyway, Falk said. What else have you got here? Whitlam clicked again, and the view changed. The other camera's over the staff car park. Again taken from a high vantage point, this footage showed a fuzzy row of cars. Those are the only two cameras in the school? Rako asked. Yeah, I'm afraid so. Whitlam rubbed his thumb and index finger together in the universal symbol for money. We'd have more if we could afford more. Can we find Karen on her last day? Fork said, although it wasn't primarily Karen they were looking for. It was Grant Dow. True to their word, Fork and Rako had spent several hours grilling Dow's mates over his alibi. They had backed him up to the hilt. It was nothing less than Fork expected, but it still pissed him off. Whitlam enlarged the car park image so it filled the screen. Karen usually drove in, so she'd probably be on this camera. He found the right recording and jumped through the timeline to the end of the school day. They watched the silent footage as pupils walked by in twos and threes, giggling and gossiping, set free for another day. A slim, bald man walked into the frame. He went to one of the cars and opened the boot. He rummaged for a moment before retrieving a bulky bag. He heaved it over his shoulder and walked back off-screen in the direction he'd come. The caretaker, Whitlam said. What's in the bag? Whitlam shook his head. I know he has his own set of tools, I'd say it was that at a guess. He worked here long? Fork asked. About five years, I think, for what it's worth, he seems like a good guy. Fork didn't reply. They watched for another ten minutes, until the trickle of pupils had all but dried up and the car park was quiet. Just as Fork was losing hope, Karen appeared. Fork's breath caught in his throat. She had been beautiful in life, this dead woman. He watched as she strode across the screen, her pale hair blowing back off her face. The low-quality recording made it impossible to read her expression. She wasn't tall but had the posture of a dancer as she walked briskly through the car park, pushing Charlotte in a stroller from the direction of the crash. Three steps behind her, Billy came into view. Fork felt a chill at the sight of the stocky, dark-haired child who looked so much like his father. Next to him, Rako shifted his weight and cleared his throat. Rako had seen firsthand what horror was waiting for the boy. Billy was pottering, fully engrossed in some toy clutched in his hand. Karen turned and silently called to him over her shoulder, and he ran to catch up. She bundled both children into her car, fastening them in, shutting the door. She moved fast, efficiently. Was she rushing? Fork wasn't sure. On screen, Karen straightened and stood completely still for a moment, one hand on the car roof, her back to the camera. Her head tilted forward a fraction, and she brought a hand to her face, made one small movement with her fingers, then another. Jesus, is she crying? Fogg said. Rewind that bit quick. No one spoke as they watched it again. Then a third time, and a fourth. Head down, two small flicks of her hand. I can't tell, Rako said. Looks a bit like she could be, but... She could as easily be scratching her nose. They let the tape run on this time. Karen lifted her head, took what could have been a deep breath, then opened the driver's door and climbed in. She reversed out of the space and was gone. The car park was empty again. The time stamp on the tape showed she and her son had less than 80 minutes to live. They stared at the footage skipping over long stretches during which no one came or went. The school receptionist emerged 10 minutes after Karen, then nothing happened for about 40 minutes. Eventually the teachers started heading to their cars one by one. Whitlam identified each as they appeared. The caretaker returned, put his bag back in the boot and drove away just after 4.30pm. Eventually, Whitlam's car was the only one left in the lot. They sped ahead on the tape. Shortly after 7pm, Whitlam himself appeared on screen. He was walking slowly, his head down and his broad shoulders slumped forward. In the seat next to Fork, the teacher exhaled. His jaw was clenched tight as he watched the footage. It's hard to look at this, he said. By then the Clyde cops had called to tell me Billy and Karen were dead. They watched on as Whitlam slowly got into his car, after a couple of false starts, successfully reversed out and drove away. They let the tape run for another 10 minutes. Grant Dow was nowhere to be seen. I'll be off then, Deborah called from reception, handbag clutched over her shoulder. She waited a moment but received only a vague grunt in response. Fogg looked up and gave her a smile. Her manner towards him had thawed in the past few days and he felt they'd had a breakthrough when she'd brought him a coffee as she fetched one for the others. He suspected Rako had had a word. Rako and Constable Barnes barely reacted as the station door slammed behind her. The three of them were each at a desk, staring at their computer screens as grainy images played out. They had taken all the available footage from both cameras at the school and headed into town. There were three CCTV cameras in Kiwara's main street, Rako had told Fork. One beside the pub, one near the council offices, and one over the door of the pharmacy storeroom. They'd collected the footage from each. Barnes yawned and stretched, his bulky arms reaching towards the ceiling. Fork was poised for the grumbling to start, but Barnes simply turned back to his screen without complaint. Barnes hadn't known Luke or Karen he'd confided to Fork earlier but he'd given Billy Hadler's class a talk on road safety a couple of weeks before his death. He still had the thank you card from the class, including Billy's crayon signature on his desk. Fork stifled a yawn himself. They'd been at it for four hours. Fork was concentrating on the recordings taken from the school. He'd seen one or two interesting things over the hours. A pupil take a secret piss against the principal's front wheels, a teacher scraping a colleague's car with her own, then hastily driving away. But no sign of Grant Dow. Instead, Fork found himself repeatedly watching the footage of Karen. She had arrived and left three times that week, every day but Tuesday, which was her day off, and Friday, by which time she was dead. Each day was much the same. At about 8.30am her car would pull up, she would get the children out, gather backpacks and sun hats and disappear off camera in the direction of the school. Shortly after 3.30pm, the process would be reversed. Fork studied her movements, the way she bent over to talk to Billy, one hand on the little boy's shoulder. He couldn't make out her face, but he imagined her smiling at her son. He watched the way she cradled Charlotte as she transferred her baby daughter from car seat to stroller. Karen Hadler had been a nice woman before she was shot in the stomach. Good both with children and finances. Bork felt certain Barb was right. He would have liked her. He obsessively rewound the footage from the Thursday, the day Karen and her son had been murdered. He played and replayed the tape constantly, analysing every frame. Was that a slight hesitation in her step as she approached the car? Had something in the bushland caught her eye? Was she squeezing her child's hand tighter than usual? Falk suspected he was jumping at shadows, but he continued to watch over and over. He stared at the image of his dead friend's blonde wife and silently willed her to pick up her mobile and call the number she had scribbled on the receipt. He willed his past self to answer. Neither event happened. The script remained unchanged. Fork was debating whether to call it a day when Barnes dropped the pen he'd been twirling and sat up in his chair. Hey, check this out. Barnes clicked his mouse, winding back the grainy film. He had been combing through the material from the pharmacy camera, which was trained on nothing more exciting than a quiet back laneway and the door leading to their supply room. What is it, Dow? Fork said. He and Rako crowded around the screen. Not exactly, Barnes said as he set the footage running the timestamp showed 4:41 p.m. on Thursday just over an hour before Karen and Billy Hadler were found dead for a few seconds the video looked like a still image showing nothing but the empty laneway suddenly a four-wheel drive flashed past it was there and gone in less than a second Barnes rewound the footage and slowed it down he froze the image as the car reappeared It was blurry and at an awkward angle, but it didn't matter. The driver's face was clear. Through the windshield, Jamie Sullivan stared back at them. The light was fading by the time Fork and Rako got to the laneway, but there wasn't much to see. They'd let Barnes call it a day after a job well done. Fork stood under the pharmacy's CCTV camera and looked around. The small road was narrow and ran parallel to Kiwara's main street. On one side it backed onto the real estate agent, a hairdresser's, the doctor's surgery and the pharmacy. On the other, parcels of scrubland had been turned into makeshift car parks. It was completely deserted. Fork and Rako walked the full length of the lane. It didn't take long. It was accessible by car at both ends. "'and connected with the roads leading east and west out of town. "'In rush hour, it would offer a perfect rat run "'to cut through town without hitting the main track. "'But this was Kiwara, Fork thought, "'and it didn't have a rush hour. "'So why did our friend Jamie Sullivan "'want to avoid being seen in town "'20 minutes before the Hadlers were killed?' Fork's voice echoed off the brickwork. "'A few reasons come to mind, none of them good.' Rako answered. Fork peered up at the camera's lens. At least we have some idea where he was now, Fork said. He could have got from here to the Hadless place in the time frame, couldn't he? Yep, no problem at all. Fork leaned against the wall and tilted his head back. The bricks had soaked in the heat of the day. He felt exhausted. His eyes were gritty when he closed them. So we've got Jamie Sullivan, who claims to be Luke's great mate, lying about where he was and caught sneaking around on camera an hour before his friend was shot dead, Rako said. Then we've got Grant Dow, who admits he couldn't stand Luke, alibied to the back teeth, while at the same time his name is in a dead woman's handwriting. Fork opened an eye and looked at Rako. Don't forget the driver of the mysterious white ute, who may or may not have seen Luke Hadler cycling away from the river at the crossroads 20 years ago, he said and that. They stood in silence for a long while, staring up the alleyway as though the answer might be graffitied there. Stuff it, Fogg said, pushing himself away from the wall and standing straight. It was an effort. Let's work through methodically. First, we drag Sullivan in again and ask him what the hell he was doing on camera in a back alleyway. I've had it up to here with that bloke messing us around. Now, Rako's eyes were red-rimmed. He looked as tired as Fork felt. Tomorrow. As they cut through a narrow passageway back to the main road, Rako's phone rang. He paused on the pavement and dug it out. It's my wife, sorry, I'd better take it. He put it to his ear. Hello, my beauty. They'd stopped outside the milk bar. Fork jerked his head towards the shop and mimed a drinking gesture. Rako nodded gratefully. Inside, the shop was cool and quiet. It was technically the same store Ellie had worked in, spending her evenings punching the price of milk and cigarettes into the till. They'd put up posters of her face in the window after her body was found, collecting for a funeral wreath. The layout had changed so much since then, it was almost unrecognisable. But Fork still remembered coming to chat to her behind the counter as often as he could find an excuse to, spending his money on things he didn't want or need. The shop's ancient fridges had been replaced at some point by open chillers, and Falk now lingered beside them, feeling some of the fieriness evaporate from his skin. His core remained uncomfortably high, like the hint of a lingering fever. Eventually he picked up two bottles of water and selected a slightly curled ham and cheese sandwich and a plastic-sealed muffin for dinner. Fork turned to take his purchases to the counter and groaned silently when he realised he once again recognised the face behind the till. He hadn't seen the shopkeeper since they were both stuck behind desks in the same sweltering classrooms. The guy had less hair now, but his heavy features were still familiar. He'd been one of those kids who was slow on the uptake and quick to anger, Fork remembered, as he cast about desperately for his name. He suspected with a flash of guilt he'd been the punchline of Luke's jokes from time to time, and Fork had never troubled himself to intervene. He forced a smile onto his face now as he walked up and put his goods on the counter. ''How you going these days, Ian?'' he said, managing at the last moment to pluck the guy's name from the ether as he pulled out his wallet. ''Ian... something. Willis.'' Willis stared at the items, as though he'd forgotten what to do. Just these, thanks, mate, Fork said. The other man said nothing, but instead lifted his head and looked past Fork's shoulder. Next, he called in a clear voice. Fork looked around. There was no one else in the shop. He turned back. Willis was still staring determinedly into the middle distance. Fork felt a hot flash of irritation, and something else. Shame, almost. All right, mate, I'm not trying to cause you any grief. I'll buy these, and I'll be out of your hair. Fork tried again, pushing his dinner closer over the counter. And I won't tell anyone you served me, Scout's honour. The man continued to stare past him. Next. Really? Fork could hear the anger in his voice. This town's dying on its feet and you can afford to turn down a sale, can you? The shopkeeper looked away and shifted his weight from one foot to the other. Falk was considering taking the items and leaving the money on the counter when Willis opened his mouth. I heard you were back. Mandy Vazer reckons you've been bothering kiddies in the park. He tried to sound disgusted but couldn't disguise the malicious glee in his voice. You are joking, Fork said. His old classmate shook his head, resuming his stare into the middle distance. So I'm not interested in serving you, not today, not ever. Fork stared at him. The guy had probably been waiting 20 years to feel superior to someone and wasn't about to waste his chance, Fork realised. He opened his mouth to argue, then stopped. It was the very definition of wasted energy. Forget it. Fork left the items on the counter. Good luck to you, Ian. You'll need it round here. The door chime rang behind him as he pushed out into the heat. Rako had put his phone away and looked from Fork's empty hands to the expression on his face. What happened? Changed my mind. Rako glanced at the shop and back to Fork, comprehension settling in. You want me to have a word? No, leave it. Thanks anyway, I'll see you tomorrow. Work out the plan for Sullivan. Fork turned, feeling more unnerved than he wanted to admit about the exchange in the shop. He was suddenly keen to get away from there, even though all that was waiting for him was a long evening in his tiny pub room. Rako eyeballed the shop once more, tempted, then looked back at Fork. Look, come for dinner round mine, Rako said. My wife's been on at me for days to ask you. Nah, honestly, it's okay. Mate, either I argue the toss with you now or I argue the toss with her later. At least I've got a chance of winning against you. Chapter 25 Forty minutes later, Rita Rako placed a steaming bowl of pasta in front of Fork. She moved away with a feather-light touch on his shoulder, And returned a moment later with a bottle of wine they sat outdoors around a small pine table covered with a colorful cloth as the sky turned to deep indigo the rakos lived in a converted former shop at the far end of the main street walking distance to the police station the back garden housed a lavender bush and a lemon tree and fairy lights strung along the fence gave the scene a festive glow Light spilled from the kitchen windows and Fork watched Rita as she disappeared inside to fetch this and that. He tried to help but she waved him down with a smile. A tiny compact woman with a halo of shiny brown hair falling over her shoulders. She ran her hand unconsciously over the swell of her pregnant belly. She seemed to harbour a huge concentration of energy and despite the pregnancy moved smoothly between any one of a dozen tasks with seamless efficiency. When she smiled, which was often, a deep dimple appeared in her left cheek and by the time she put the food in front of Fork he could see why Rako was in love with her. As they began to eat, a rich concoction of tomatoes and eggplant and spicy sausage washed down with a decent Shiraz. He felt he was a little bit in love with her himself. The night air was warm but the dark seemed to soak up some of the heat. Rita sipped mineral water and looked with good-natured longing at the Shiraz. Oh, what I wouldn't give. It's been so long, she said, and laughed at her husband's disapproving expression. She reached out and stroked the back of his neck until he smiled. He's so worried about the baby, she told Fork. So overprotective, and she's not even here yet. When are you due? Fork asked. To his untrained eye, she looked right on the verge. Four weeks, she caught her husband's eye and smiled. Four long, enormous weeks still to go. Over good food, the talk came easily. They spoke about politics, religion, football. Anything but what was happening in Kiwara. Anything but the Hadlers. Only when Rako cleared the table and disappeared into the house with the plates did Rita finally ask. Tell me, she said to Falk, honestly, please, is everything going to be all right? She looked towards the kitchen door and Fork knew she wasn't talking just about the Hadler case. Look, it's never an easy job policing a small community, he said. You're on a hiding to nowhere in lots of ways. There are politics involved, too many people who know too much about each other but your husband's doing an excellent job. Really. He's smart. Genuinely dedicated. The top brass recognise things like that. He'll go far. Oh. Rita made a gently dismissive noise and flapped a hand. He's not worried about that so much. His dad was a community officer his whole life, out on a tiny dot on the map somewhere near the South Australian border. You won't know it. No one does. Her gaze drifted towards the empty doorway again. He was highly respected, though, I understand. He ran the town like a firm but fair patriarch and they loved him for it, up until the day he retired and beyond. She paused, reached over and shared the dregs of the wine between Falk's glass and her own. Shh, she said, and put a finger to her lips as she raised the glass. Falk smiled. Is that where you met? in South Australia? Yes, but not in his town. No one would ever go there, she said matter-of-factly. It was in my parents' restaurant in Adelaide. He was working nearby. It was his first job with the force and he was so proper, so keen to make his dad proud. She smiled at the memory and drained her small glass. But he was lonely and used to come into our restaurant all the time, until I took pity on him and let him ask me out for a drink. She rubbed her hand over her stomach. He waited while I finished my master's and then we got married straight away. That was two years ago. Master's in what? Pharmacology? Fork hesitated. He couldn't think how to phrase the question. Rita saved him. I know, she said with a smile. So what am I doing barefoot and pregnant in the middle of nowhere when I could be putting my qualifications to use somewhere else? She shrugged. It's for my husband and it's not forever. His ambitions, you know, they're not the same as some others. He worships his father and he's the youngest of three boys, so I think he feels, wrongly in my opinion, that he always has to fight for his dad's attention. So we moved to this small rural town and he had such high hopes that it would be like it was for his father, but almost immediately everything went so she hesitated. Wrong. He has a weight on him constantly. He was the one who found that little boy's body, did he tell you? Fork nodded. Rita shivered despite the heat. I tell him all the time, I tell him. What's happening in this place, it's not your fault. This place is different. It's not like your dad's community. Rita raised her eyebrows at Fork and he nodded. She shook her head and flashed half a dimple. Still, what can I do? It's too complex for logic, isn't it? A man's relationship with his father. Rako appeared in the doorway as she spoke. He was holding three mugs of coffee. I've put the pots in to soak. What are you talking about? I was saying you put yourself under too much pressure to live up to your father's standards, Rita said, and reached out to smooth his curly hair. The dimple flashed again. Your partner here agrees with me. Fork, who hadn't offered an opinion either way, decided Rita was probably right. Rako coloured a little, but moved his head to meet her hand. It's not quite like that. It's okay, my love, he understands. Rita took a sip of her coffee and looked over the rim of her mug at Fork. Don't you? I mean that's partly why you're here yourself, isn't it? For your father? there was a mystified silence. My father's dead. Oh, I'm very sorry to hear that. Rita looked at him, her eyes sympathetic. But surely that doesn't make it any less true. Death rarely changes how we feel about someone, heightens it more often than not. My love, what on earth are you on about? Rako said, giving her a friendly nudge as he picked up the empty wine bottle. I knew you shouldn't have any of this. Rita frowned a little, hesitating. She looked from Fork to her husband and back again. I'm sorry, she said. Perhaps I've got the wrong end of the stick. It's just that I heard the rumours, of course, about your young friend who died. They said your father suffered. Was accused himself, even. Had to take you away, leave his home. That must have caused some friction. And even now, those awful leaflets being scattered around town with his photograph she stopped. I apologise. Please ignore me. I'm always reading far too much into a situation. For a long moment, no one spoke. No, Rita, Fork said. Actually, I think you've read it just about right. Mal Deacon's ute filled the rearview mirror for more than a hundred kilometres along the road out of Kiwara. Aaron's father, Eric, drove with one eye in the reflection and two hands clenched on the wheel. Aaron sat mutely in the passenger seat, still reeling from his hasty goodbye to Luke and Gretchen. The Forks household goods clunked and shifted in the back, whatever they'd managed to fit in. Far behind them, their farmhouse had been locked up and secured as tightly as they could manage. The sheep flock had been divided between any neighbours willing to take them on. Aaron was afraid to ask out loud if the arrangement was for now or forever. Just once near the start of the journey, Eric had slowed right down to encourage Deacon to pass, as if this were a normal drive on a normal day. Instead, the dirty white ute had advanced steadily until it shunted the back bumper with a jolt that sent Aaron's head snapping forward. Eric didn't slow down again. Nearly an hour had passed when Deacon suddenly blasted his horn in one continuous bellow. He edged closer, his vehicle huge in Aaron's side mirror, the noise blaring and bouncing along the empty road. The sound crowded Aaron's head and he pressed his palms against the glove box, bracing himself for the inevitable jolt from behind. By his side, his father's jaw was set. The second stretched long, and when Aaron thought he couldn't stand it any more, the noise stopped. The abrupt silence rang in his ears. In the reflection, he saw Deacon wind down his window and slowly extend an arm and then a single middle finger. He held it there for an age, braced against the wind, and then he finally, mercifully, grew smaller and smaller in the mirror until he disappeared from sight. Dad hated Melbourne, Fork said. He never really settled there. Found an office job managing the supply chain for an agribusiness, but it absolutely sucked the life out of him. Fork himself had been pointed in the direction of the nearest high school to finish his final year. Distracted and dismayed, he barely remembered picking up a pen, let alone raising his hand. He sat his final exams and emerged on the other side with grades that were strong rather than outstanding. I managed to adjust a bit better than Dad. He was really lonely there, he said. We never talked about it though. We both kind of closed in on ourselves and got on with it. That didn't help. Rita and Rako looked across the table at him. Rita stretched out her hand and placed it over forks. I'm sure whatever sacrifices he made for you, he felt they were worth it. Fork inclined his head a fraction. Thank you for saying it, but I'm not sure he would agree. Aaron continued to watch in the mirror as they drove on in silence. Deacon didn't reappear. After an hour of nothing, his father abruptly braked, slamming Aaron against his seatbelt as he pulled the truck over at the side of the empty road with a squeal of tyres. Aaron jumped as Eric Fork slammed a hand against the steering wheel. His dad looked paler than usual and his forehead glistened with a sheen of sweat. Eric swivelled in his seat and in one swift movement had reached out and grabbed his son's shirt. Aaron gasped as hands that had never once been raised at him in anger now twisted the fabric and dragged him closer. I'm going to ask you this one time, so tell me the truth. Aaron had never heard that tone in his father's voice before. He sounded sickened. Did you do it? The shock of the question rippled like a physical force through Aaron's chest and he felt like he was suffocating. He forced himself to gasp a breath, but his lungs were tight. For a moment, he couldn't speak. What? Dad? Tell me! No! You have anything to do with that girl's death? No, Dad, no. Of course I bloody didn't. Aaron felt his own heart thudding against his father's grip. He thought of their best possessions knocking and grinding in a pile in the back of the ute, of his rushed goodbye to Luke and Gretchen, of Ellie, who he'd never see again, and Deacon, who he even now checked for through the rear window. He felt a thrill of anger, and tried to wrench his dad's hand away. I didn't, Jesus, how can you even ask me that? Aaron's father kept his grip. Do you know how many people have asked me about the note that dead girl wrote? Friends of mine, people I've known for years, years, crossing the street when they saw me, all because of that note. He tightened his grip, so you owe it to me to tell me. Why was your name on it? Aaron Fork leaned in, father and son, face to face. He opened his mouth. Why was yours? We were never the same after that, Fork said. I tried a few times over the years, he probably did too in his own way, but we couldn't really fix things. We stopped talking about it, never really mentioned Kiwara again, pretended it didn't exist. None of it had happened. He put up with Melbourne, put up with me and then he died. That was it. How dare you. Aaron's father's eyes flared and there was an unnameable edge to his expression. Your mother is buried in that town. That farm was built up by your grandparents, for God's sake. My friends and my life are back there. Don't you dare throw this on me. Aaron felt the blood pumping in his head. His friends, his mother. He had left almost as much behind. Then why are we running? He grabbed his father's wrist and wrenched it off his shirt. It came free this time. Why are you making us run with our tails between our legs? It only makes us look guilty. No, that note makes us look guilty. Eric stared hard at Aaron. Tell me the truth. Were you really with Luke? Aaron made himself meet his father's eyes. Yes. Eric Fork opened his mouth. Then he shut it. He looked at his son like he'd never seen him before. The atmosphere in the car had morphed into something tangible and putrid. He shook his head once. Turned back to the wheel and started the engine. They drove the rest of the way without exchanging a single word. Aaron, burning with anger and shame and a thousand other things, stared into the side mirror for the entire journey. Part of him was disappointed that Maldeacon never reappeared. Chapter 26 By the time Fork had walked back from the Rakos place, he'd felt an urgent need to cleanse himself. The past coated him like a layer of grime. It had been a long day, and the evening felt later than it was. The bar had still been in full swing as he slunk past and up the stairs. In the shower, his body bore the marks of exposure to the Kiwara sun. The skin of his forearms, his neck, the V of his collar. What had been pale was now an angry red. The first thumps on the door were almost inaudible over the running water. Fork shut off the taps and stood naked, listening. Another flurry of knocking sounded, louder this time. "'Fork, quick!' the muffled voice was accompanied by another round of bangs. "'Are you in there?' He grabbed a towel and nearly skidded on the wet floor. He flung open the door to find a breathless McMurdo with his fist raised to knock again. "'Downstairs!' the barman was panting. Hurry! He was off, taking the stairs two at a time. Ford pulled on shorts, a t-shirt and trainers without bothering to dry himself and slammed the door behind him. The bar was in chaos. Chairs were overturned and the floor glittered with broken glass. Someone was hunched in a corner, his hands over his nose slick with blood. McMurdo was on his knees trying to pry apart two men grappling on the floor, Around them, a semicircle of drinkers slowly wiped the smirks off their faces and stepped away as Fork took two strides into the centre of the room. The abrupt drop in volume distracted the two men on the floor and McMurdo was able to get an arm in. He pulled them apart and they lay sprawled in their respective corners, breathing heavily. Jamie Sullivan's eye was already swelling up, distorted into a bulbous shape. His bottom lip had split, and he had scratch marks across his cheek. Opposite him, Grant Dow grinned, then winced, feeling his jaw tenderly. He seemed to have come off best, and he knew it. Right, you and you. Fort pointed to two of the least drunk onlookers. Take Sullivan into the bathroom and help him wipe that blood off his face, then bring him back here, understand? They helped Sullivan up. Fork turned to Dow. You, take a seat over there and wait. And no, shut it. It's very much in your own interest that you keep that trap of yours closed for once. You hear? Fork turned to McMurdo. Clean cloth, please. And large glasses of water all round. Plastic cups. Fork took the cloth to the man in the corner who was doubled over, clutching his nose. Sit up straight, mate. Fork said, that's the way. Here, hold this. The man straightened and took his hands away. Fork blinked as Scott Whitlam's bloodied face appeared. Jesus, how'd you get mixed up in this? Whitlam tried to shrug and winced. Wrong place, rog type, he said, pressing the cloth to his nose. Fork turned and looked pointedly at the onlookers. I suggest the rest of you make yourselves pretty bloody scarce he said. Rako forced his way in as the room was emptying. He was wearing the same t-shirt he'd had on at dinner, but his curly hair was sticking up on one side and his eyes were bloodshot. McMurdo rang. I was asleep. We need an ambulance. I've got Dr. Lee on standby. Falk looked around. Sullivan was back from the bathroom and glanced up, a concerned expression on his face at the mention of the doctor. The other two were hunched over in their chairs no, I don't think so, he said, unless you're worried about two of them being brain-dead. What's the story? He turned to McMurdo. The barman rolled his eyes. Our friend Mr. Doe over there seems to believe the only reason he's in the frame for the Haddler's deaths is because Jamie Sullivan doesn't have the balls to confess. He decided no was an opportunity to encourage him to do so. Fork strode over to Dow. What happened here? misunderstanding. Falk leaned in close, so his mouth was right by Dow's ear. He could smell the booze several layers deep in his paws. If we're bothering you, Grant, all you need to do is give us a decent reason why she wrote down your name. Dow gave a bitter laugh. His breath stank. (laughs) That's bloody rich coming from you. You mean... Like the decent reason you never gave for that note Ellie left? No. He shook his head. I could give you a thousand reasons, mate, and you still wouldn't go away. You won't be happy until you pin the haddlers on me or me uncle. Fork pulled back. Watch yourself. Keep talking like that and you'll be formally questioned and processed and find yourself in a whole heap of aggro, understand? Fork held out his hand keys. Grant looked up in disbelief. No chance. You can pick them up at the station tomorrow. Save over five kilometres to my place, Grant protested, cradling them in his palm. Tough. Enjoy your walk, Fork said, plucking the keys from his paw and pocketing them. Now bugger off. He turned his attention to Sullivan and Whitlam, who were being inexpertly tended by McMurdo and Rayco You want to tell us what happened, Jamie? Fork asked. Sullivan stared at the floor out of his one good eye. Like he said, misunderstanding. I don't mean tonight. There was no reply. Fork let the silence stretch out. This is only going to get worse the further you let yourself sink. Nothing. Right, Fork said. He was clammy, wet from the shower and had had enough. Be at the station at ten tomorrow. We need to talk to you anyway. And fair warning, mate, I would have a good, hard think overnight about where you were that day. Sullivan's features crumpled. He looked like he was about to cry. Fork exchanged a look with Rako. I'll drive you home, Jamie, Rako said. Come on, let's get you up. Sullivan let himself be helped out of the bar. He didn't look at anyone. Finally... Fork turned to Whitlam. He looked embarrassed behind his cloth in the corner. I think the bleeding stopped, Whitlam said, gingerly testing his nose. Let's see. Fork peered at it and tried to recall his first aid training. Well, as long as it's not school photo day any time soon, you'll probably survive. Jeez. We don't need to get you down to the station tomorrow as well, do we? Not me, Gov. Whitlam held up his hands. I'm an innocent bystander. I was coming out of the toilets and they barreled into me. Didn't even see it coming. I lost my balance and whacked my face on a chair. All right, Fork said, helping Whitlam up. The man was a little unsteady. I'm not sure you should drive though. I'm on my bike. Motor? Jesus, I'm a school teacher. Pedal. Right. Come on. It was tight, but they squeezed the bike in the boot of Falk's car with some twisting of the handlebars. They drove mostly in silence through the deserted streets. Any luck with the CCTV? Whitlam said finally, coughing as he tried to breathe through his nose. We're still working through it, Falk said. Thanks for your help with that. No worries. His swollen face was a distorted reflection as he stared out of the window at the emptiness. Jesus, I hope this is all over soon. This place is like a nightmare. Things will get better, Falk lied automatically. Will they? Whitlam said. He was slumped back down in his seat, touching his nose gingerly. I'm not sure. I remember when I used to worry about normal things, footy scores and reality TV. Seems unbelievable. Now it's the school and the funding gaps always trying to find the money. Little kids turning up dead for God's sake. Whitlam stared out of the window until they pulled up outside his house. A welcoming light glowed over the porch. Relief passed across his busted features. Home. Fork, exhausted and uncomfortable in his sticky clothes, was hit with a fierce longing for his own flat. Thanks for this. You want to come in for a drink? Whitlam asked as they got out of the car. But Fork shook his head. I'll take a rain check, thanks. It's been enough for one day. Fork opened the boot and jostled the bike, twisting the handlebars until it came free. Sorry if it's made a mess, Whitlam said, peering at the upholstery in the dark. Don't worry about it. You'll be okay from here, with the nose and everything else. Whitlam swung his bike around. He attempted a smile. Yeah, I'll live. Sorry for being morose, it's the -the over-the-counter paracetamol talking. It won't always be like this. You're just unlucky to be caught up in it. That's the thing, though, isn't it? No one can control the ripple effect of something like this. Whitlam's voice sounded heavy. Fork wasn't sure if it was just the nose. It's almost funny. am standing here feeling sorry for myself, but then I think about poor Billy. Talk about being caught in the wake. I tell you, whatever went on in that house with Luke, the drought, the farm... Whatever the reason, that little boy should never have been touched by it. At the top of the driveway, the front door opened and Sandra stood framed in the glow. She waved. Whitlam said goodbye and Fork watched as he wheeled his bike up the path. He still looked a little shaky. As Fork clambered back into the car, his phone beeped once. It was a text from Rako. Fork read the words and thumped the steering wheel in delight. Want to know why Jamie Sullivan was in the laneway? Call me ASAP. Chapter 27 The man was already waiting patiently outside the station when Fork and Rako arrived early the next morning. Dr. Lee? Rako introduced Fork. Thanks for coming. That's fine. It'll have to be quick though if you don't mind. I've got a full surgery today and I'm on call later. Rako said nothing, just smiled politely and unlocked the station door. Falk looked at the doctor curiously. He hadn't met the town's GP before, but recognised the name from the Hadlers' murder report. First medical attendee on the scene. He was in his mid-forties, had a full head of hair and the healthy glow of someone who practised what he preached. I brought the notes on the Hadlers. Dr Lee put a folder on the interview room table. That's what this is about, isn't it? Any progress? He sat down in one of the offered seats and crossed his legs, relaxed. He had an iron rod spine and excellent posture. Some, Rako's smile didn't quite reach his eyes this time. Dr Lee, could you please tell us where you were on the afternoon of the 22nd of February? Jamie Sullivan stood alone in his field and watched Luke Hadler's ute disappear in the distance. As it vanished, he took out his mobile and sent a single text. He waited. Within two minutes, the phone buzzed with a response. Sullivan gave a tiny nod and headed to his own four wheel drive. Surprise darted across the doctor's face and he gave a confused smile. You know where I was that afternoon. I was with you at the Hadler murder scene. And the two hours before that, a pause. I was at the surgery. With patients? Earlier, yes. Then I rested in the flat above the surgery for a couple of hours. Why? What do you mean? It's quite common when I'm on a split shift. Being on call early and late is exhausting, as you know well yourself, no doubt. Rako gave no reaction to the attempt at common ground. Can anybody confirm this? Sullivan drove the short distance to town. He passed no one on the country roads and only a handful of vehicles as he got nearer the centre. Before he hit the main street he took a sharp right, turning into a small laneway behind the row of shops. He was being overcautious, he knew. No one would think twice about seeing his car parked in town. But the sense of secrecy was stitched through him like a scar and it was impossible now to override. On a wall overhead, a CCTV camera outside the pharmacy blinked as he drove past. Dr Lee leaned in, frowning. His long fingers picked at the corner of the Hadler folder, unsure whether to open it. Seriously, what the hell is this about? If you could answer, Rako said. Were you alone in the surgery flat that afternoon? Lee looked from Rako to Fork and back again. Should I call my lawyer? Does she need to be here? There was a challenge in his voice. That, Rako said, could be prudent. Dr Lee pulled back from the table, as though he'd been burned. Sullivan parked his car in the garage that was always waiting empty and unlocked for him. He got out and pulled the roller door down to hide his vehicle from view, wincing at the scream of metal on metal as it closed. He waited a moment. Nothing reacted. The laneway was empty. Sullivan went to the anonymous door next to the surgery's supplies entrance and rang the bell. He glanced left and right. A moment later the door opened. Dr Lee smiled at him. They waited until they were inside and the door was firmly shut before they kissed. Lee closed his eyes and rubbed his index finger along the bridge of his nose. His excellent posture had bent a fraction. All right, I take it from all this you've been told the situation, he said. Yes, then. I wasn't in the flat alone that afternoon. I was with Jamie Sullivan. Rako made a noise that was half frustration, half satisfaction, and sat back in his chair. He shook his head in disbelief. About time. Do you know how many hours we've spent, wasted, chasing Sullivan's story? I know. I do. I'm sorry. The doctor sounded like he meant it. You're sorry? Three people died, mate. You were there with me. You saw the bodies. That poor kid. Six years old and his head shot off. How could you let us chase our tails? Who knows what damage you've done? The doctor swayed a little in the chair like he'd been hit by a physical force. You're right, Lee said. He bit his thumbnail and looked close to tears. Don't you think I wanted to say something straight away? As soon as I found out you'd been at Jamie's place asking questions. Of course, he should have told you then. I should have told you then. But we panicked, I suppose. We didn't speak up immediately, and then more time passed, and by then I... we... didn't know how. Well, I hope the delay was worth landing Jamie with a busted face last night, Rako said. Lee looked up, shocked. Oh, didn't you know? Rako went on. Yeah, he was involved in a pub fight. It's the only reason he told me what was going on. It was his head rather than his conscience that took a whack. You could have saved us all this trouble days ago. Shame on you, both. The doctor put his hand over his eyes and stayed there for a long minute. Fork got up to get him a cup of water and he gulped it down gratefully. They waited. So you felt you couldn't tell us then, it's time to tell us now, Fogg said, not unkindly. Lee nodded. <clears throat> Jamie and I have been together about 18 months, romantically, but obviously we've kept it quiet, he said. It started when he began having to bring his grandmother in more often. She was getting worse and he was struggling on his own. He needed support and someone to talk to and it grew from there. I mean, I'd always suspected he might be gay, but around here. Lee broke off and shook his head. Anyway, I'm sorry, none of that matters. The day the Hadlers were killed, I had open surgery until four o'clock and then had a break. Jamie sent me a text and I told him to come over. It was a fairly usual arrangement. He arrived... chatted for a while, had a cold drink and then we went to bed. Sullivan was in the tiny bathroom drying himself off from the shower when the flat's emergency phone rang. He heard Lee pick up. The muffled conversation was brief and urgent. The doctor put his head around the bathroom door, his face clouded with worry. I've got to go, there's been a shooting accident. Oh shit, really? Yeah, listen, Jamie, You should know. It's at Luke Hadler's place. You're joking. I was just with him. Is he okay? I don't know the details. I'll call you. Bet yourself out. Love you. You too. And he was gone. Sullivan got dressed with shaking fingers and drove home. He'd seen a shooting accident once before. A friend of a friend of his father's. The acid copper stench of blood had slithered up to the back of his nostrils and lingered for what had felt like months. The memory of it was almost enough to conjure up the hot sick scent again, and Jamie was blowing his nose when he arrived home to find two fire trucks outside. A firefighter in protective clothing met him as he ran to the door. It's all right mate, your gran's okay. I'm afraid your kitchen wall's another story. After you went to Jamie's asking questions, he called me, scared. Lee said. He said he'd been caught off guard and had lied to you about where he was. Lee looked them both in the eye. There's no excuse for that. I know that and he knows that. But I ask you, please don't judge us too harshly. When you've been lying about something for so long, it becomes second nature. I'm not judging you for being gay, mate. I'm judging you for wasting our time when a family's lying dead. Rako said. The doctor nodded. I know, if I could go back and do things differently, I would. Of course I would. I'm not ashamed of being gay, he said. And Jamie, he's getting there. But there are plenty of people in Kiwara who would think twice about letting themselves or their kids be treated by a poof. Or want to sit next to one in the fleece. Lee looked at Fork. You've seen firsthand what happens when you stand out here. That's all we wanted to avoid. They sent the doctor on his way. Falk thought for a beat, then jogged out of the station after him. Hey, before you go, I want to ask you about Mal Deacon. How bad is his dementia? Lee paused. I can't discuss that with you. One more thing for the list, eh? I'm sorry, I would, but I really can't. He's a patient. I'm not asking for specifics. General observations will do. What kind of things can he remember? Ten minutes ago, but not ten years ago, vice versa? Lee hesitated, glancing back towards the station. Very generally speaking, he said, patients in their 70s with symptoms similar to males tend to suffer fairly rapid memory deterioration. The distant past may be clearer than more recent events, but often the memories blend and get muddled. They're not reliable if that's what you're asking, generally speaking, that is. Will it kill him? Last question, I promise. Lee's expression was pained. He looked around. The street was virtually empty. He lowered his voice. Not directly, but it complicates a lot of things health wise. Basic personal care, nutrition, it all gets compromised. I'd suspect a patient at that stage would have a year or so, maybe a little more, maybe less. Doesn't help if the patient's had a drink or three every day of his adult life either, generally speaking, of course. He nodded once like a full stop on the conversation and turned. Fork let him go. They should both be charged, him and Sullivan, Rako said when he returned to the station. Yeah, they should. They both knew it wouldn't happen. Rako leaned right back in his chair and put both hands over his face. He gave an enormous sigh. Oh, Jesus. Where the hell to now? To kid himself that they weren't stuck in yet another dead end, Fork put in a call to Melbourne. An hour later, he had a list of all the light-coloured youths registered in Kiwara in the year Ellie Deacon had died. There were 109. Plus anyone from out of town could have been driving through, Rako said gloomily. Fork ran his eyes down the list. There were a lot of familiar names. Former neighbours, parents of his old classmates. Mel Deacon was on there. Fork stared at that name for a long time. But so was everyone else. Jerry Hadler himself, Gretchen's parents, even Fork's dad. Jerry could have seen half the town at the crossroads that day. Fork closed the file, fed up. I'm going out for a bit. Rako grunted. Fork was glad he didn't ask where. That's all for now. Thank you for listening. Make sure to follow this podcast to get the next episode. Or if you just can't wait, you can buy the audiobook of The Dry wherever books or audiobooks are sold.